0: So we're going to study this afternoon the third temptation of our Lord and it's in Luke chapter 4 and we're looking at verses 9 to 13, Luke chapter 4 verses 9 to 13 and before we read that I'll pray so please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven we pray that you would now bless your word to us, that we would be given ears to hear, eyes to see and hearts that are understanding and obedient. Father please give me wisdom, please help me to speak according to your word and according to your wisdom. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll read from the start of chapter 4 through to the end of verse 13. And um, as I said, verses 9 to 13 we're paying attention to particularly this afternoon. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Hear the word of God. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Amen. So we've come to the third temptation. And once again, we have something revealed to us of, pardon me, we have something revealed to us of the power of the devil. He took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Now, it does interest me, some of the commentators that I read suggested that that perhaps this was a vision and that perhaps Jesus wasn't really on the pinnacle of the temple. Well, if um, you're only having a vision, why would it matter if you jumped off the pinnacle of the temple? You know, Jesus if if he's not there in body why would it matter whether or not he jumped off the pinnacle of the temple Satan has the power that God permits him to have for God's purposes and I point out once once again that for people like you and I we're fools if we start to think that we can take him on and we can defeat him in our own strength we simply cannot That's why Jesus is undergoing this tempting, this testing here that we're reading about here in the Gospel of Luke. You've heard the phrase temple jumping. I'm not going to jump off temples. When people say that, what do they mean? No. It's implying that someone is trying to be a religious show off. Um, There are some fairly extreme examples of this in church history. Um you'll find them if you search on the internet. Some may or may not be true, but I, I have read that a pastor in Africa attempted to uh, walk on water and got bitten by a crocodile. I've read of a pastor having his people drink petrol because he found in the final chapter of the Gospel of Mark that they shall drink poison and it shall not harm them. Um, I've read of a pastor who apparently caused one of his... Um church members to be suffocated to death. He had that person lay on the ground and then he took one of the big amplifier speaker boxes that the band was playing through, he laid that on the person, then he himself sat on the speaker box to prove that um they would not be harmed because God was protecting them and he could do no wrong. But apparently the person died. You'd call that temple jumping. All of that is kind of foolishness the, the 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 stupid demand of a person that god perform some certain miracle at some certain time just to prove that they have the power that they are god's trusted servant and it's just plain silliness but what i want you to think about here is that basically what the devil is saying to Jesus is, why don't you get a sign? Are you really certain? Are you sure you heard that voice? You know, the voice that said, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Are you really sure you heard that voice? And are you really sure you understood what it meant? Because maybe you're not so sure. Maybe what you need is a sign to convince you to strengthen you. If we um, look back in Bible history, and so I want you to turn back, for example, to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3. You'll find that God has a history of dealing gently with his chosen servants, even when his chosen servants are not sure. Looking in Exodus chapter 3, let's let let's read from verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a land, to a good land and a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve on this mountain. The discussion goes further. Moses asks God to tell him who should he say has sent him and asks God, what if the people don't believe me? What if the people don't believe that you have sent me? And he also comes up with the excuse that he's not very good at speaking. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 1, Moses answers, "But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say the Lord did not appear to you." The Lord said to him, "What is that in your hand?" He said a staff, and he said, "Throw it on the ground." So he threw it on on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some of the water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground and the water that you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Stop there. Moses speaks in doubt and God gives Moses signs. God, first of all, gives Moses a sign. In the future, you will return to this mountain with the people and worship here. Moses still doubts. Behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Moses gets to cast his staff onto the ground. It becomes a snake. He gets to pick it back up again. It becomes his staff. Moses gets to see that God has power over the most frightening disease in the world at that time and still a frightening disease, leprosy. He puts his hand in his coat, it becomes white. He takes it out again, it's white. Puts it back in, takes it out. He's been healed. He's given signs. God dealt gently with Moses. God's promise to Moses was, you are not alone. I will be with you. And by these signs, you know that I am God Almighty and I am strengthening you in the job that I have given you. Turn to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 6, looking from verse 11. Judges chapter 6, verse 11. We're looking at the calling of Gideon. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valour. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favour in your eyes, then show me a sign, that it is you who speak to me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour, the meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And we'll stop there, we could go a little further, but Gideon had questions. I'm not sure about this. You're speaking to me, you're telling me that I'm the deliverer of Israel. But I look around me and things aren't good. Things don't seem to be going well. We're all hiding. By the way, don't you notice that I'm trying to thresh out grain in a wine press? In other words, he's in a hole in the ground, hoping that as he threshes out the grain, no one will see him do it, so no one will steal the grain. You know, I'm not sure about this. I, I lack assurance, and he gets given a sign. And then we all know, I'm, I'm sure we're all familiar with the sign of the fleece. He, he's still not certain. And in Judges chapter 6, down at verse 36, we read, Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night and it was dry on the fleece only and on all the ground there was dew. So there's two examples. There are other examples of people given signs by God to be found in the Old Testament. God deals gently with his chosen people. He deals gently with them. He knows their weakness. He knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. I often quote it from Psalm 103. He knows their weakness. And he gives them signs to assure them that he is with them, that he will work this great and mighty work. He's kind of like a a gentle father to them. He, he, He takes into account their humanity. Now go back into the Gospel of Luke and go to chapter 4 and think of the temptation being set before Jesus. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Do you need a sign? Are you feeling a little bit of weakness? Do you think that perhaps the promises of God don't actually really apply to you? Do you think perhaps that God is not going to uphold you in your ministry? This is the way the devil's working. This is the temptation that he's trying to slide in to the heart of the Lord Jesus. And he backs it up with some scripture. He backs it up with some quotation from Psalm 91. He will command his angels to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, there's something a little bit significant in there, and... I'm only asking, do you know Psalm 91 well enough to actually know what's just happened there? Let's turn to Psalm 91. I'm not sure this is the most important part of the temptation, but sometimes people conveniently brush over the scripture. Sometimes they conveniently miss certain parts of the scripture that aren't saying what they want it to say. And in doing so, They change the meaning just a little bit, just enough to introduce doubt or room for manoeuvre. Psalm 91 at verse 11. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. He will command his angels, looking at Luke chapter 4, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And what's missing? To guard you in all your ways. Now, in all your ways, think of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the way of the wicked. And Psalm 1 finishes with the thing that the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Satan's misusing scripture. He's He's misquoting scripture by deliberately overlooking something. Something that's not convenient to his plan, which is to tempt to turn aside the Lord Jesus, and he's basically daring Jesus to seek a sign. Seek a sign. Make sure you're certain. You heard the voice did it mean what it said? You heard the voice did you understand it right? The voice said you're a beloved son. Well, Beloved sons can do whatsoever they please. Can they not? That's the temptation. Jesus is alone. Jesus is alone. When a Gideon and a Moses and anyone else whom God sets his love upon in the Old Testament, not anyone else, but you get my meaning. When Gideon and Moses seek a sign, God reassures them. I am here with you now. Jesus is alone. He's in the desert being tested as a man and he is basically there fighting in his own human resources. He's filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. He has the scriptures, but he's not seeking a sign. He's not seeking reassurance. So when you think about it, how often have you heard Christians say, I laid a fleece before the Lord? You know, I, I needed an answer. I needed to know God's will. I laid a fleece before the Lord. Is that a good thing? And my answer to that is I'm not really sure. I, to be honest, I'm not really sure. It's certainly not a good thing when you're appointed to be the saviour of all mankind. He's, he's there to win a victory and it's to be a pure, unquestioned victory. He's there not to be turned out of his way, even by the nearest millimetre. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Verse 12, And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so here we have to talk about this. I've sort of held it off till now. In the few sermons that I've ever heard concerning the temptation of our Lord, the the greatest emphasis has always fallen upon this. Know your scriptures and use them well. And I'll be honest, one of the reasons that I've slowed down and tried to break down each temptation and tried to get into the depth of it is because I've always thought that there was more there than simply telling a person, you should be like Jesus, know your scriptures and use them well. But having said that, it's definitely there. Know your scriptures and use them well. It's for us to know the word of God. We like to talk about the fact that Scripture promises us that we'll never be tempted beyond that which we can bear and that there always is an escape from a time of temptation. Well, it's a promise of God. It's in the Scriptures. It's true. It's there. But, my friends, here in this ultimate test, what did Jesus have and what did Jesus use? The Scriptures. He had the knowledge of the Holy Scriptures and he used the Scriptures Correctly, in faith, and he used, he, he found his satisfaction in the scriptures. He found sufficiency in the scriptures. So I actually want to talk about not just know your scriptures and use them well, but I want to assure you the scriptures are sufficient. They're sufficient for Christians. If, you know, there are many, many good books out there. If you don't have the Pilgrim's Progress, you're not going to lose your salvation. But nearly. No, if you you don't have the Pilgrim's Progress, you're not going to lose your salvation. It's a great book. I get something out of it every time I read it. I get strengthened and encouraged by that book. And there are a whole lot of other Christian books. You know, there, there are certain books by John Owen that have made an enormous difference in my life. He's one of the Puritans and some of his pastoral preaching like um, Indwelling Sin in the Believer. I found it so helpful. It, it really strengthened me in my walk with the Lord. But if you don't have that book, you're not going to lose your salvation. You know, any useful book you can name outside of the scripture, there could be very there could very well be good things in it, and it could be very well used by the Lord to strengthen us, to build us up, to, to keep us in our way, to teach us, all of those things. But if you want to be able to resist temptation and escape temptation, my friends, you need to know your scriptures and you need them. And the scriptures are sufficient. They are sufficient. You know, do the scriptures tell me how to change a tire on my truck? And the answer is, no, they don't. That's not what they tell me. But they do tell me that God created the earth and that the earth is upheld by the laws that God put in place and that the things we attempt to do, if they are done in conjunction with and with understanding of the created laws that God has put in place, we can get these things done. Leverage is a principle that God designed. And if I want to break the grip, of the nuts on a truck wheel, I need a lot of leverage. I'm a heavy guy, but if I jump on a short lever, I'm not going to break the grip of those nuts. But if I get a long lever, I'll break it. I'll get the nuts off. I'll be able to change the tyre. That's a principle that God built into creation. Scripture is sufficient. It is sufficient for us. In terms of going to Christian counsellors, be careful. Go to counsellors who turn you first of all to the scriptures and who encourage you to study the scripture and to grow in the scriptures and to apply the scriptures to your life. There are many people who do counselling courses who call themselves Christians and what they're really bringing is basically worldly training from a completely worldly point of view and topping it off with a prayer to Jesus. Now, you know, what, what can modern day psychiatry or psychology do? Well, it can, to a degree, diagnose a problem. It can, to a degree, describe the problem and restrain the person from self-harm. It can to, it can shed a little bit of light on a problem and perhaps help a person. But apart from scripture, there's no healing there. Apart from the work of God's Holy Spirit, there's no solution to any problem to be found in, in, in modern science of any kind. Spiritual problems need spiritual solutions and spiritual things rule the world. God himself is spirit. God, by his Holy Spirit, enlivens and enables and empowers his church. We've seen here that this spiritual being called the devil had the power to show Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and had the power to take Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. And it seems as though he got him in there instantly, just like that. You know, science fiction movies have these you know teleporters. People step into somewhere and... A second later, they step out of somewhere, supposedly light years away or whatever it might be. Well, it appears here that this was basically, beam me up, instant, taken to the temple in Jerusalem. Spiritual things rule our world and we, we get uncomfortable with that. Am I saying that every storm is the work of a demon? No, but the scripture tells me that storms can be the work of angels. You know, does the weather run according to the laws that God has built into his creation? Yes, it does. But the scripture also tells me that when God wants a certain thing to happen, it happens. Whether you're talking about a storm or rain or drought or whatever, God rules his creation. Yes, God upholds the laws which have his creation operating seemingly of itself day by day. But it's God himself who's upholding those laws. And God can do with his creation whatsoever he chooses to do and he can do it through angels if he chooses to do so. And so angels can exercise the power of God and they can change the weather and they can change things around about us and they can change the behaviour of people. You know, we we have a word to describe the behaviour of many people. What would we call it? And it seems to be that we're seeing more and more of it today. I would say in Australia today we're seeing more and more demonic behaviour all around about us you know we're not using that word by fluke (laughs) it's it's all around about us our society is being given over and my friends we need we need to know the word of god we need to be regularly reading the word of god i honestly recommend that you need to be memorizing certain parts of the word of god I'm not saying that you have to memorize a whole book or even a whole chapter, although it's not a bad challenge to undertake, if ever you do. But you need to be memorizing the word of God and you need to also be considering your own spiritual makeup, what kind of person you are, and what kind of strength you need. If you understand what I mean. You need when 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 you find passages in Scripture that seem to be speaking directly to you and giving you help, strength or restraining the evil that you know is still dwelling within your flesh, perhaps that's something you should think about Mm memorising so that, just as Jesus could bring the word of God to bear against the temptations of Satan himself, you can do likewise. We can't be Jesus. We're not Jesus. We're not the saviours. We're not perfect. But the scripture does tell us that we are supposed to be seeking to imitate Jesus. We are supposed to be growing in Christ likeness. That we are supposed to be trying to do the things that Jesus did. And so, my friends, we shall not put the Lord our God to the test. Think of some other things. You know, when, when, how often has the thought ever occurred to you as a Christian? And it's occurred to me, so I'm not, Picking, pointing at you. I think it occurs to every Christian. My sins will be forgiven anyway, and that's kind of the last thought before you give in to some kind of temptation. You surrender to something that you should never do. God forgives sins. I'm going to sin. My sins will be forgiven anyway. Well, my friends, that could very well, that that very thought itself could well be demonic in its origin. I. I would tell you that I believe that tempters, small-time devils, small-time servants of the devil have the ability to insert thoughts in our own minds and often in our own voice. You think it's yourself talking to yourself and it's not. It's something evil whispering in your inner ear in the perfect imitation of your own voice. And one of the most common ones is God forgives sins anyway. Last thought before surrender. Yeah, I see some serious faces, so I think I'm making sense. It's it's the last thought before surrender, and you know we're all in the same boat here. I, I I'm not Jesus either. So, my friends, we need to know Scripture, and we need to be able to bring Scripture to mind. Do not love the world or the things of the world, for if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the desire of the eye and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. That's what I got you to read. Why have I memorised it? Because I'm in the battle. And that helps me. That's an example. That was three verses. 1 John chapter 2 verses 15 to 17. That helps me in the battle to remember that. To have to have it ready to be called to mind. And my friends, there's there's no spiritual gift of supernatural scriptural knowledge. Alright? This is a repetitious kind of thing that we have to do. I, I in my mind it's like ploughing. I grew up on farms, I like to farm, I happily go back to farming. Ploughing is a very repetitious thing. You're just trundling along all day long, following a line, following a line, following a line. That's all you do. And our study of the scripture should be like that, just trundling along, moving forward through the scriptures. Go back and start again when you get to the end. Just keep trundling along, trundling along. And when you find, for example, a passage like the one I just quoted you, if you find that passage helpful, get a copy of it, And start reading it again and again and again and again. Get it fixed in your mind so that it's there. At any time that you need it, you're able to access it. And at least to some degree, with the help of God, we will be able to imitate Jesus. And we will be able to throw scripture into the face of temptation. And it does help. That and prayer. Pray for strength. Pray for help. So Jesus answers, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I'm thinking of Psalm 6. Just turn to Psalm 6. Looking at the last three verses, verses 8, 9 and 10. The psalmist says, depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In the face of scripture, our Lord is able to say, depart from me, you worker of evil. Depart from me. Send the temptation away. Drive it off. Mind you, notice the Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, has spent 40 days in prayer, in the fellowship of God. Go often to God. Spend as much time in his presence as you can. Go often to God, deliberately, with with the thought of being strengthened in your sanctification upon your mind and seek God's help. So back at verse 13 of Luke chapter 4, and when the devil had ended ended every, every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. What was in the words of that song we just read? I mean the song we just sung earlier. Yield not to temptation, for yielding is sin. Each victory will help you, some other to win. Each victory will help you, some other to win. The devil departed from Jesus until an opportune time. He hadn't finished. There are other times coming. There are other tests coming our Lord's way. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood, asking if there was some other way for salvation to be worked other than for the judgment of God to fall upon him, he was alone. It's the people who have served God throughout the ages have had the, the help of God in that service. But Jesus, he had the help of God. But think, for example, of Jesus upon the cross. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? He wasn't aware of it. Now, I don't think that God was apart from him. I don't think that God had left him. I don't think that's to be taken literally. I think what we're to understand from that is that in that moment of time, Jesus did not know anything of fellowship with God the Father. He could not feel fellowship with God the Father. Sin the burden of our sin had fallen upon the Lord Jesus and sin separates us from our God. And so he knew the feeling of separation due to sin. He who was, within it, he who was without sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We get help and often when we're at our weakest, we get the most help and actually we know that we're getting the help. We, we feel that we're being strengthened. You know, there are, there are crises that come and go and somehow or other you get through them and at the end of it, you wonder how I got through it. I wonder how I did that. You know, how was I restrained from evil in that moment or how did I have the faith to get through that disaster? you got the help of God, and you knew it. Jesus, at the times of his greatest temptation, was in a way left at his greatest weakness. He was fighting for us. He was fighting for our lives. He was struggling on. The devil departed from him until an opportune time. In, in your Christian life, you're going to have times of victory. You're going to have a disaster. You're going to have times when it just seems to be going right and all the ducks are in a line and you're going to have times when it seems that nothing goes right and you can't even find the ducks. It's as simple as that. The devil is always awaiting an opportune time. In the providence of God, he's always awaiting an opportune time and he doesn't come at us when we're strong. He comes at us when we're alone. He comes at us when we're weak. He comes at us when we're not ready. He is evil. He's evil personified. He is hatred of God personified. He is hatred of God's law personified. He is hatred of God's righteousness personified. He is an evil personality who hates God and who hates the people of God. So in summing up, should we ever be seeking the help and the assurance of God? And the answer is yes. Why? Because we know our sins and we know our weakness and we know that we need the help of God. But should we ever be thinking that maybe it's time now to jump off the temple and just prove to the world how important I am in the eyes of God? The answer is not. We should never be seeking a sign just for the sake of a sign. We, we we should never we should never be seeking a sign just to elevate us in the eyes of the world around about us. That's uh, that's basically a very similar temptation to that which was presented to our Lord here in the Gospel of Luke, and so we've come to the end of these three temptations. From here on in, Jesus begins to minister in the power of the Holy Spirit, and his victory over Satan is public and the people are amazed what new doctrine is this they say even the spirits hear and obey him this is where he won this was it this is where he basically declared himself to be god's appointed savior who will not be turned aside being sinless ministering in the power of god's holy spirit he now takes control over any situation that God brings his way. He now exercises his divine authority though he is still in his humanity, truly human. Adam fell short of the mark under temptation. Jesus did not. All have fall short, all fall short of the glory of God, all except this one. Jesus did not fall short of the glory of God. He did battle with evil personified, and he was victorious. And so, my friends, we're victorious. We're victorious. We'll close at Romans chapter 16. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Jesus won. Satan's under his feet. My friends, the promise of God is Satan will be crushed under our feet. Ultimately, the victory is ours. We can't be stolen from the hand of God. God has said he will save us. God has said that we have eternal life. God will carry us through into the new heavens and the new earth, and there we dwell in the presence of the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus' victory here in the wilderness is the means by which the head of the serpent begins to be bruised. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that in Christ the victory is ours. We thank you, Father, that you are our merciful Father that you sent your only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And we thank you, Father, that in Christ the victory is ours. Father, may we walk in faithful obedience. Please help us to grow in the knowledge of the Scriptures and please help us to be Christ-like in all things. Help us, Father, to resist temptation, to flee temptation and to pursue holiness. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.